Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Job chapter 4, 5, and 6. Eliphaz speaks, the innocent prosper. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yes, who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it, amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men. Dread came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening they are beaten to pieces, they perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die and that without wisdom? Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool, and jealously says the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eats his harvest, and he takes it even out of thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upwards. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty, so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime, and grow up at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of the mouth, and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles, and seven no evil shall touch you. In famine he will redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue, and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine you shall laugh, and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know that also that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age, like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out, it is true. Hear and know, it is for your good. Then Job answered 
and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed, and all my calamity laid in the balances, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash, for the errors of the Almighty are in me. My, drinks, my spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass, or the ox low over his fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt, or is there any taste in the juice of the mellow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope. That it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait, and what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. When they melt, they disappear. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The caravans turn aside from their course. They go up into the waste and perish. The caravans of Tamal look, the travelers of Sheba hope. They are ashamed because they were confident. They come there and are disappointed. For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. Have I said, make me a gift? Or from your wealth offer a bribe for me? Or deliver me from the adversary's hand? Or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? Teach me, and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. How forceful are upright words. But what does reprove from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is win? You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. But now be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn. Let no injustice be done. Turn now. My vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? And cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? Thus says the word of the Lord. Let us now pray for the preaching of God's word. Father, we thank you for your word and for what you have done with your servant Job, Father, because from his example, from the teaching of this book, we can too have wisdom in the midst of suffering, not just in how we suffer, how we might receive counsel, but also how we too might counsel those who are suffering to avoid bad counseling and also to therefore endorse good counseling and to also exemplify good counseling. And ultimately, of course, Father, help us see how this text points to the greater comfort that we have by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Friends at Covenant City Church, we're continuing our series today in the book of Job, just covering some of the high points from this particular text, which is very appropriate for our season here, an unusual season uh, dealing with a pandemic and with uh, serious and intense suffering around us. We do well, therefore, to take a look at this book and also to glean its insights about how to be wise in the midst of suffering. And right now we're in chapters 4, 5, and 6, and I hope you've noticed that this is a long passage, but uh, be not worried, because even though this is a long passage, it's actually just comprised of uh, two main parts. The first part, um, chapters 4 and 5, is Eliphaz, uh, one of Job's three friends who have come to him to counsel him in his grief. Uh, It's Eliphaz's um, counsel or comfort to Job. Now, we're going to see that this is actually really bad counsel, uh, so this is the first part of the text, chapters 4 and 5, Eliphaz's counsel to Job. 
And chapter 6 is Job's response to Eliphaz's rebuke or Eliphaz's counsel there. And what we're going to see, therefore, from this particular passage is, what does bad counseling look like to somebody who is suffering? And second, why that counseling is so bad? And third, how, therefore, uh, we can uh, receive good counseling? And uh, the first point is going to be covering the first two chapters here of chapter 4 and chapter 5, taking a look at Eliphaz and what he actually says to Job. And the second two points about why it is so bad and how we can, therefore, receive good counseling is taken from Job's response in chapter 6. All right, so let's go first immediately to the first point, what bad counseling looks like. And notice here in chapter 4, Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered. So notice here, what is Eliphaz responding to? Eliphaz is responding to what Job was just saying in chapter 3. Remember, Job in chapter 3 was lamenting to his friends. His friends had came, and as Tazar had said, his friends had came, even though, yes, perhaps with a good intention to want to comfort and counsel Job, uh, Job's three friends are actually going to give him really bad counseling, really bad advice, and even uh, they're going to try to rebuke Job multiple times. And this is one of the first rebukes that Eliphaz is going to give to Job in the form of, yes, trying to counsel him, but it's going to come off really, really badly. So Eliphaz is answering to Job's lament in chapter 3. What is Job saying in chapter 3? You remember, Job was uh, uh, in despair. He was distressed. He was lamenting before God. Yes, he was praying, but he was also saying a lot of hard and difficult things. He was cursing the day of his birth. He was saying that it was better for him not to have been born than for him to actually suffer the kind of things that he was suffering now, right? So notice that Job's lamentation uh, is not the lamentation that you would expect perhaps from what you might think a holy person might say. And it's exactly what Eliphaz is going to be honing in on. He's going to rebuke Job's lament, and he's going to be rebuking Job's situation and trying to counsel him in such a way where he's going to try to convince Job that he must have done something wrong, that God was causing this calamity to come upon Job precisely because it was a retribution to something that Job had done. So let's take a look at Eliphaz's bad counsel here. And so it, it shows us what bad counseling looks like here in our first point. And I'm going to divide up this first point into four subsections, just taking a look at particular portions of Eliphaz's response here to Job's lament in chapter 4. Um, the first thing that Eliphaz does in his bad counseling to Job is that Eliphaz is going to rebuke Job's lamentation itself, rebuke Job's words. And you find this in verses 2 all the way to verse 6. Notice here what Eliphaz the Temanite is saying to Job. If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Uh, notice what he's saying there. Immediately, the tone of his counsel, it's in the form of a rebuke. He's saying here, look, Job, I have to brave myself to become courageous enough to come to you because I'm kind of scared. I just saw the way you lamented at God, and I want to I talk to you, and I want to rebuke you. I want to counsel you, but I'm kind of scared that you will also be impatient with me in the way that you've been impatient in chapter 3, right? Yet who can keep from speaking? In other words, Eliphaz is saying here, if anyone sees you in the state, Job, um, anyone would have to feel this instinct to, to rise up against you, to speak into your life because you can't go on in this way. There's this tone of um, self-righteousness in Eliphaz, uh, seeing that it is his task and, and Job's friends' task to come before Job now to rebuke his lamentation. And it becomes even more harsh as we see and progress here in chapter 4 particularly. Verse 3, Behold, Job, uh, Eliphaz is saying, You have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. 
Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. Uh, Eliphaz here is recounting Job's reputation, right? And, and what Job had been doing as a teacher, as a, as a pillar of the community, as someone who believed in God and had instructed other people in the word of God. Eliphaz is in effect saying, look, in the past, Job, you have comforted so many people and you've taught so many people, but now when you are the one who's suffering, you don't measure up to your own teaching, right? Look at verse 5. It now has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. It's not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope. In effect, Eliphaz is saying, Job, you're a hypocrite. I've heard your sermons in the past. Here's what you told people who are suffering. And now that you are the one who's suffering, you don't follow your own advice. Your words betray that you never really understood what you were teaching other people. You don't measure up to your own teaching. And Job, I thought that the fear of God was your confidence and the integrity of your ways, your hope. Where is that fear now? Where is that hope now? Um, in effect, right, look at what Eliphaz is saying here. He's saying, I thought you were a Christian, right? I thought you were a believer. I thought you had such a strong faith in God. Where is that faith now? And you lamenting the way that you did, and you uh, using the words the way that you did, um, you have shown that you don't really measure up to your own teaching. You don't really fear God. So that's the first thing that Eliphaz does to Job and against Job. He rebukes the words of Job himself, the lamentations of Job. But it gets even worse. Here's the second thing that Eliphaz does here. And this is found in verses um, 7 to 11 specifically. He's going to not only question um, the, the rightness of Job's lament and the fact that Job needed to lament, he's also going to question Job's innocence. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished, verse 7 says, or were the upright cut off, as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Notice what he's saying here. He's saying innocent people simply don't perish. Uh, so let's follow that reasoning here. Let's infer from that. Your family perished, Eliphaz is saying, so they must not be innocent. Uh, look at verse 10 and 11. What is Eliphaz saying about the family of Job here? The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions, referring to Job's children, are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cups of the lioness are scattered. This is really difficult language here. This is thick Hebrew imagery. Um, the Bible often refers to sin and Satan and temptations of the devil as a crouching wild animal, right? Remember the story of, of Cain and Abel. How did God um, um, counsel Cain and Abel about the, the presence of sin? It's like a crouching animal waiting for you. You got to watch for it, right? Uh, Peter in 1 Peter talks about uh, the devil as a kind of roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. And notice the implication of what Eliphaz is saying here. If you and family are being destroyed, you and family are facing this calamity, it must be that you are uh, emulating the voice of the devil. You are evil. Uh, this is what Eliphaz is saying to Job here, right? And notice the, the farming imagery here as well, found in verse 8 to 9. As I've seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Uh, there's the reaping and sowing analogy, right? If you reap trouble, it must be because you have sown trouble. Calamity, in other words, doesn't just come out of nowhere. It must be the case that you've done something in the past that has caused you now to get this trouble, right? It doesn't just come out of nowhere. He's going to echo this later on in chapter 5, verse 6 as well. It says there, For affliction does not come from the dust, uh, 
nor does troubles sprout from the ground. Uh, affliction and trouble, he says, doesn't just um, arise out of the ground if there was no seeds under it, before it. You must have done something, Job, to merit this in your life. In your family, perhaps they're just like wild animals who needed to be tamed. These are harsh words from a friend who was just grieving with him a couple of chapters before, right? These are harsh words that Eliphaz is communicating to Job, assuming, therefore, that Job is not innocent and that he deserves the suffering that has befallen upon him. This must be punishment. It gets even worse than this, friends. And you might be thinking, how can it possibly get even worse? There's going to be a bizarre passage here in verses 12 onwards of chapter 4, because in this particular passage, Eliphaz isn't just saying, look, your family can't just be innocent. Eliphaz is going to say something about a supernatural vision that came upon him. Look at verse 12. A word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it amid thoughts from visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. Dread came upon me in trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? So notice here what's going on, right? Verses 2 to 6, he's saying, stop lamenting, Job. Uh, You're a hypocrite if you lament in that way. Uh, Verses 7 to 11, he's saying, you're not innocent. How do I know that you're not innocent? Well, uh, trouble doesn't just come out of nowhere. God is a just God. God must be punishing you. Not only that, a spirit told me that you're not innocent because the spirit told me no man is, is innocent before God. Now, this is a very difficult text to interpret, right? Um, and they're basically, when you take a look at uh, the particular commentaries, uh, two particular views of this passage. Um, one view says that this is, in fact, a vision from God himself. Uh, why? Because technically speaking, verse 17, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Verse 17 is telling us a theological truth. It's definitely true that human beings are not righteous before God and that there's not a single human being, except, of course, later Christ, who is pure before God, right? That's actually a theological truth there. So in this first interpretation, uh, well, since this claim is actually true, Eliphaz is just misusing it against Job, right? This is Eliphaz's fault in misusing uh, a theological truth against Job himself, right? But the second interpretation, and I think this is the interpretation that I'm more persuaded by, even though uh, it might not have the same kind of consensus as the first view, but it's a growing uh, scholarship, apparently. The second view says that verse uh, 17 here, this vision that Eliphaz has, is not actually a vision from God. It's actually a vision from a demonic spirit, a being who, yes, speaks a theological truth, but is misusing this truth to pit Eliphaz against Job, and therefore what is happening here is uh, uh, Satan still trying to create more affliction for Job by turning his friends against him. Now, how do I know, or what are some defenses that we can uh, produce to say that this is actually a demonic spirit and not a divine spirit? Well, firstly, it's not surprising that a demonic spirit can actually use uh, a theological truth and misuse it, right? This happened in the garden. The serpent came to Adam and Eve and twisted the truth of God when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan actually quoted Psalm 91 
and quoted it out of context, uh, said it in a way that, that only communicated a half-truth uh, before he misused it so that um, Jesus might be tempted in the wilderness, right? So Satan's ploy often involves doubting the word of God, misusing the word of God, quoting the word of God, uh, and, and using it in the wrong way, applying it in the wrong way. But not only that, right? We already know in chapters 1 and 2 why it is that Job is suffering. And friends, it's not because Job was being punished. Why is Job suffering according to chapter 1 and 2? Not because he was uh, 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 being punished. It was because he was innocent. God was saying to Satan, if you cause Job to suffer, he will not fall over. He will not be exposed as merely a con man, as merely a faker. He's actually the real deal. So in other words, we already saw in chapters 1 and 2 that God wasn't punishing Job in this calamity, but rather God was actually uh, trying to vindicate Job's righteousness. So it cannot be that this theological truth here is telling us the truth of the matter about Job. Verse 17 is actually going against what we know from chapters 1 and 2. And later on toward the end of the book in Job 42, uh, God is going to say to all the three friends of Job, you have not spoke rightly, but rather my servant Job has. In other words, God explicitly takes the side of Job over his friends saying, Job didn't do anything wrong to merit this kind of suffering. And you, friends, you have made the mistake in assuming that he is not innocent in this case. So here I think we have uh, um, a, a, a demonic spirit further afflicting Job by turning his friends against him. And so, again, notice how bad this is, right? You can already assume why this is such a bad counseling, which uh, we'll cover again in the second point. But notice what is being done here in Eliphaz's counsel. This is like saying, you know, if a husband and a wife, right, they just had a fight and let's say the husband commits adultery and the wife tells her friends, my husband committed adultery and I didn't do anything to merit something like this. Why would he do this against me? And then her friend, her family members, instead of listening to this victim, to this wife, says, let me just consult a dukun, right? Let me just consult uh, orang pinter, some magician out there who can foresee something about why it is, because you must have done something wrong. I know your husband. There's no way that he would do this to you, right? This is not something foreign for us in Indonesia, for us in Jakarta, who still believe in the productivity of these kinds of visions and consulting demonic spirits, right? Um, this is the kind of thing that's going on here. Eliphaz would rather listen speculatively to a spirit that, you know, remember it says there, I could not discern before my eyes. I don't even know where the spirit comes from. In other words, um, rather than listening to Job, he would listen to this speculative vision. That's bad counsel. That's disbelieving your friend and instead believing in something very much more speculative. But not only that, here's the fourth thing to note about what Eliphaz is doing here. He adopts a very simplistic view of theology. He adopts a, what we might call a retribution theology, which says simply that the world is divided into two. There's the good guys and the bad guys. The good guys are going to be uh, uh, prosperous and the bad guys, they're going to suffer. Uh, this is found especially in chapter 5, verses 8 onwards. Here's what Eliphaz says to Job. As for me, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the scheme of the wily are brought to a quick end. 
Notice the logic here of this retribution theology. It's saying here that the world is a pretty simple place. The good will prosper, the bad will be caught. And if you're bad, simply just give up your bad, Job, and go and be good again. Have more faith in God. Seek God the way that I am. Notice here that what is embedded in this kind of reasoning is the same kind of reasoning that you would get in the prosperity gospel, which simply says that if you're suffering, it must be because you don't have enough faith. And if you are suffering, right, uh, just have more faith so that you could become prosperous again. And so immediately that puffs up those who are uh, rich because they say, well, I'm rich because I have enough faith. I have done so much good before God. That's why I'm prospering. And it also uh, adds more burden to those who are struggling because they're saying to, to these people, hey, you must be struggling because you're not good. You must be struggling because you lack faith. You must be struggling because you've done something in the past that merits this. This is the kind of retribution theology that Eliphaz is communicating to Job. And the message is simple. Job, God is just. And like I mentioned in that vision, right? If angels um, could err before God, so would you, a mere human being. You could not be pure before God. You were just a man of dust. You have no real foundations. If the angels could err, so much more could you err. And if God is just, no innocent person would suffer. And if you suffer, Job, you must be not innocent. You must be guilty. So that's what bad counseling looks like, all right? So now let me just cover why this is so disastrous, why this is so bad, all right? And we're going to cover this in just three headings here. And we're going to take a look at Job's response particularly at the end of his response and also at the beginning of his response in chapter 6. How does Job respond here? And, and, and how Job responds we see why Eliphaz's um, um, uh, response to Job's lament is so bad. The first thing to note about why it is so bad is that Eliphaz misunderstands the necessity and nature of lamentation. Look at what Job says here in verse 25 to 26. This is, I think, a passage that ought to be embedded in the minds and hearts of counselors who are counseling grieving and depressed, distressed people. How forceful are upright words but what does reprove from you reprove? Verse 25 says of chapter 6. Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? Right? The speech of a despairing man is wind. Now that's a crucial text. Job here is saying is, your, your upright words, they don't understand what I'm doing here and what a despairing man needs, Right? The, the speech of a despairing man is wind, not in the sense that the speech of a despairing man is untrue or somehow unfaithful, but rather just as the wind comes and goes, the speech of a despairing man comes and goes in the heat of the moment. In the heat and the worst of his emotional distress, he must vent it out. He must express himself. In other words, lamentation in the context of despair is to be expected. It's to be necessary. And as good friends, you're not supposed to reprove the words of a despairing man, but rather expect it, um, listen to it, and know that this will come and this will go. This is not going to be reflective of what that despairing man knows, but rather this will come and go. So in other words, it's not as if Job doesn't know that God is just, right? Job knows that God is just. It's not as if Job doesn't know that God is sovereign. God, I mean, Job knows that God is sovereign, right? But in the midst of his despair, that knowledge is just kind of recedes in the background and the emotions take over. And in the midst of that emotions, he will say things that, that expresses himself, that goes against what he knows 
deep inside. And that's exactly what suffering would do. That's exactly what a despairing man would do, right? We see this two other examples. One in Habakkuk, in the book of Habakkuk, you see the prophet Habakkuk lamenting against God, saying that, God, I thought that you were holy. Why would you let, therefore, a sinful people take over the goods of your people, Israel, right? Why would you do that, God? I thought you were a holy God. Now, obviously, Habakkuk knows that God is holy, but he was in despair. He was lamenting before God. And I think here we see this ultimately exemplified in Christ Jesus. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen when he died on the cross. He knew that he would be vindicated by the Father. He knew that the Father had sent them exactly for this purpose, that he would be resurrected after he had died faithfully on the cross. But despite that knowledge, right, he still had to go through the greatest temptation through the garden. He still cried out to God, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, though knowing deep inside that this is the very plan that God had sent him for, right? And as Job's friends are simply giving him a lecture, assuming that Job doesn't know simple theological truths, like nobody is innocent or that God is just, um, really is demeaning to Job himself. Job knows all these things, but in the moment of despair, let a man process it. Let a man uh, lament. That's necessary, and that's okay. God would vindicate Job again later on, saying that Job had done no wrong in this. So they misunderstand the necessity and the nature of lament. And lament comes and goes, and it's necessary. The second thing here that is absolutely crucial for us to note is that Job's friends, especially here in Eliphaz, misunderstands the complexity of the causes of suffering, right? They assume that the cause of suffering has to be just one thing. It must be retribution. It must be punishment. If you're suffering, it must be because you're, you're, you're guilty. You're not innocent. You must have deserved this in some way. And Job immediately is saying, I'm blameless. I did not deserve anything to, to deserve this kind of suffering. Now, let me clarify this, right? Because I've heard in our community groups and a lot of people have asked me as well, well, look, Gray, like I thought that you just said, right? Verse 17 of chapter four, the vision. Can a man be pure before God? I thought you said that that's true. Nobody could be pure before God. And we're reformed. We believe in total depravity. We believe that everybody's a sinner in the hands of a hangry God. How could we, therefore, believe that Job is actually innocent? So what does Job mean when he says here that he's actually innocent? Well, Job is actually going to admit later on in chapter 9 that he has to appeal even to the mercy of God. So Job, when he's saying that he's innocent, he's not saying that he's perfect or that he's purely sinless. What he is saying is that he hasn't done something specific to merit this specific kind of calamity. Let me just uh, try to give a faint analogy of this. Maybe it's silly here, right? But, but maybe this would help. Um, the analogy that I have in mind here is, let's just say one day, you know, I am uh, having breakfast somewhere and I'm having coffee somewhere public, right? And then Tazar comes to me and he comes over me and he looks angry and then he punches me. He throws away my coffee, punches me in the face. I have a black eye right after that. And then he runs off and he, he gets away, right? What am I supposed to do at that point? I might come up to him and I might confront him and say, hey man, where did that punch come from, all right? I haven't done anything to deserve that kind of punch. Now, what's going on in that particular context, right? I might be able to admit, hey Tazar, I haven't been the best uh, person to you perhaps in the past. I haven't been, I'm, I'm, I'm no, I know I'm not a perfect person. I'm not a perfect friend. But that punch really came out of nowhere. I'm not exactly sure. I feel that I have a clean conscience with respect to this. I don't deserve that punch. I'm blameless. 
Notice what I'm doing there. Notice what I'm saying when I'm saying that I'm blameless there. I'm not saying that I'm a perfect husband to Indita or that I'm a perfect friend to Tazar, right? But I'm saying that punch really was not caused by anything specific that I had done. I haven't done anything specific to merit that particular kind of punishment. And for you, therefore, my friend, Eliphaz, right, to believe and to accuse my children and myself to be lions who deserve to be thwarted by the wrath of God, that I've done something specific to deserve this particular kind of punishment at this particular point of time, you are wrong. I am blameless with respect to this. So you got to get rid of this understanding of suffering as merely a, 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 a caused by retribution. This is not retributive suffering. This is not suffering as punishment. And we know this by looking at the rest of the Bible, don't we? There's so many kinds of suffering for the rest of the Bible, right? There is, yes, a suffering that is a, as a consequence of our sin, as retribution of our sin, you know? Uh, if you run uh, a red light uh, while, you're, while you're getting drunk, right, and you get a ticket or, or worse, right, that's a real consequence from your sin. That's real retribution there. But that's not the only kind of suffering in the Bible. There is a kind of suffering, for example, that sanctifies you, as Peter says, there's a suffering that comes to you like a fire to a gold so that you might be more purified by sustaining yourself through and persevering and enduring through the suffering. It, it produces character in you. That isn't suffering because it's a punishment. That's suffering as a means of sanctification. There's also a very mysterious kind of suffering that is a suffering for the greater good. You see this in two instances in Jesus' life and ministry. In, in John chapter 9 and John chapter 11, for example, John 9, remember the instance there of Jesus and the blind man, right? Jesus walked across the, uh, this blind man and the disciples asked Christ, why is this man born blind? Is it because he sinned or his parents sinned? And Jesus said, neither. This is not retribution. This happened so that you might see the glory of God, right? So that happened because Jesus was going to heal the blind man and in the rest of the chapter, the blind man actually becomes an amazing evangelist for Christ. This happened again in John 11, right? with the death of Lazarus. Lazarus died and Jesus came days later, purposely so. Why? Jesus says well, he was glad that he only came later after Lazarus had died, after his body began to smell. Why? So that you too might see the glory of God in this. There's this suffering that is ordained by God for the greater good. And of course, that's exactly what's happening here in Job's life. Job's suffering was, you might say, for the greater good the greater good that we would actually have this text for the greater good of vindication. There's all sorts of other mysterious reasons, perhaps, in the plan of God. But notice, this is not retributive suffering. So Job's friends are simplistic in their theology. They need to broaden their view of what suffering might entail and what, why suffering might be caused here to Job. And here's the three, third reason why they are... Um, their rebuke, their counsel to Job is so bad, right? The third sub-point under my second point. The first point, the first sub-point, remember, is that um, Job's friends here uh, didn't understand the necessity and nature of lamentation. Job's friends didn't understand the complexity of the causes of suffering. Third, Job's friends didn't empathize, and that's exactly what despairing people need. Instead of empathizing, they railed at him. They invoked visions against him. They gave him a simplistic theological lecture. But notice what Job is saying here in verse 2 to 4 of chapter 6, right? Oh, that my vexations were weighed. 
and all my calamity laid in the balances, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me, and my spirit drinks their poison. What's Job saying here? Job is simply saying, friends, you don't know what I went through, and you don't know what I'm going through. Empathize with me. Feel the pain with me. Instead of rebuking me from your lofty high position, right? Come alongside me. Know the pain that I'm, that I'm going through and listen to me. Simply listen to me, right? Job's friends, in other words, are not only unempathetic friends, they have, have failed to, to do the, f- the fundamental thing to do to grieve, to grieving people, right? What is that? Simply sitting with them and listening and listening well and not jumping into conclusions, not presuming about what God would know, not proudly saying, here's what God is doing, God must be punishing you, but rather simply listening to the victim and allowing him to lament. Unfortunately, of course, this is not going to be followed through by them. Again and again, in, in later chapters, you're going to see this being repeated. Job's friends are going to say, you need to repent, that you deserve worst, that you've done something, you've got to now expose yourself, right? Confess your sin against God over and over again. They fail to empathize and they fail to listen to Job. So we see, therefore, what bad counseling looks like. And we also see why it's so bad. It's so bad because it's, it's very simplistic. Simplistic view of lament, simplistic view of suffering, and fails to listen to the victim himself, right? So how, therefore, can we receive good counseling? Um, we already see instances of what good counseling might look like, right? Don't underestimate the necessity of lamentation. Uh, really see that life is mysterious. It's not just about retribution. Listen to the victim. But how can we now, if we are facing suffering, how can we put ourselves in a position to receive good counsel from God himself, right? And we see glimpses of this in Job's response again. Job is positioning himself in such a way, yes, without denying the gravity of his suffering, he's positioning himself to receive the counsel that comes from God. Right? The first thing, and perhaps the most important thing here that Job is doing to position himself to, to be able to receive good counseling, to be comforted, is that Job has a clean conscience. That's so crucial, because now Job can eradicate from his mind that this is actually punishment from him, right? Again, verse 30 says, Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? Right? Job is saying here, I have really searched my heart and I honestly could say that there's nothing uh, at this point of time, nothing particular that I have done to cause all of my property to be taken away and my children to be taken away, right? There's nothing. My conscience is clean with respect to this. Uh, So don't compound your suffering with guilt. Don't allow Satan to grab a foothold upon you to be able to accuse you and say, look, this is exactly why this happened. This is why your property was taken away. It was because you embezzled money or because you robbed somebody, right? No, have a clean conscience so that in the midst of these accusations, you can with a clean conscience say, no, I have not done something that could therefore be a cause to be, to be the root that naturally means that this suffering would become a consequence for me. Have a clean conscience. But notice, friends, to have a clean conscience means that you have to have clean conscience before God, that you're directing these things to God. Look at verse 8 of chapter 6. Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope. In other words here, in the midst of his lamentation, and in the midst of his hope that he is actually innocent, 
He's not relativizing his innocence. He's not saying, well, with respect to other people, I'm pretty innocent. No, he's saying, before God, I haven't done anything to cause this particular kind of suffering, and I will continue to direct myself to God, right? And so again, we might say, yes, Job's lamentations are harsh words, but he's still directing these harsh words toward God, right? Again, another analogy might help here. You know, if, if I've done something wrong, for example, and uh, let's say Josh was, was angry at me, but Josh still wanted to have a relationship with me, here's what Josh would be doing. Josh wouldn't be going behind my back and saying harsh words against me without ever letting me know. No, Josh would come directly to me and confront me about it trying to air his grievances directly to me in a confrontation, not in the form of gossip, in other words, which would break the relationship, but in the form of confrontation for the hope that there would be reconciliation there through that confrontation, right? And analogously, friends, Job brought these lamentations before God. He didn't try to, to, to smear God's name um, um, to other people so that they might turn away from God. No, he directs his attention solely to God, with the hope that God would vindicate his innocence. And that is exactly how you could cleave your conscience and also uh, be prepared to receive the counsel from God. You continually direct yourself to God and saying these harsh words that you feel as you despair uh, to God himself. But notice here, right? The only way you can have a clean conscience, truly, the only way, in other words, you can know that this is not a punishment and that God would listen to your lament, not as a judge, but as your father, is if you could truly know that God really is close to you, that God really is on your side. Look at verse 9, and this is a crux here. That it would please God to crush me, that he would lose his hand and cut me off, but this would be my comfort, verse 9 and 10, sorry. This would be my comfort, that even though, yes, God, you might crush me, that you would lose his hand and cut me off, this is my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing. I would accept it, in other words. For I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Here's Job's one comfort. Here's how he knows that he is innocent, that, that God would be by his side, that he would be able to accept everything that God gives to him, right? That he has not denied the words of the Holy One, that he has kept to the Word of God. That's his hope, that God is on his side. He has not denied God. And listen, friends. Job, in this particular context, right, uh, could say this about God in his particular context. It could talk about maybe the Torah or talk about Old Testament revelations about how the word of God will vindicate the word of God will be his comfort. But we, friends, we have a greater comfort because we know exactly what the word of the Holy One is. The word of the Holy One came to, yes, confound Eliphaz's retribution theology. Eliphaz, remember, asked this, right? Uh, who that was innocent had ever perished? And who were the upright? Where were the upright ever cut off? He asked that in chapter 4, verse 7. And notice, what did the Holy One say in response to that? What is the word of the Holy One that we could hold on to? The innocent one really did suffer. The upright one really did get destroyed. This Holy One came as the innocent sufferer. This Holy One came in the flesh, in Christ Jesus, so that he might be the innocent sufferer, so that those who are unpure could become right before God, so that those who are unpure could be vindicated the way Job has. But not just that, friends, right? Not only 
did God in Christ Jesus exemplify that the innocent one would suffer for those who are not innocent. He also does way more than that because he is the one who could comfort those who are despairing now. The book of Hebrews chapter 10, for example, talks about Jesus as our great high priest who was able to sympathize with us, who suffered in every way that we did, and who was tempted in every way that we would be tempted. Now, that's a profound statement. You know, when I was teaching uh, Sunday school back in um, Los Angeles to a, a Baptist congregation there to a bunch of teenagers, I still remember one particular question that a teenager had asked to me. You know, why didn't Jesus just come as a baby and he immediately died as a ransom for sinners, as, as our substitute? You talk a lot, uh, Gray, about, about the death of Christ being the substitution for sinners. Him taking on the wrath of God and he died for us. Well, why didn't he just come as a baby and just die? What's, what's up with his 30 years of private life being a carpenter before uh, his parents and then three years of his ministry, right? What's up with all of that? And why did he have to suffer and betrayal? Why did he have to be lied to? Why did he have to be spat on? Why did he have to go through a full human life, in other words? Why didn't he just die? Because, friends, here's why. Jesus didn't just come to die on our behalf. Jesus came to be our comfort, to go through everything that we could go through so that Jesus too can speak in the speech of despair, so that Jesus too can come alongside those who are despairing and say, I've been through it. I've walked in your shoes before, and not only did I die for you, I've lived every emotion that you would ever go through, and I've lost loneliness. I've lost so many people that I experienced loneliness for you. In other words, why did Jesus experience grief, loneliness, despair? Well, because he knew that this is exactly what you would need. Because he knew that God's people didn't just need satisfaction for sin. God's people didn't just need the wrath of God to be substituted for. God's people also need comfort. And friends, if you are despairing today, know this. Don't deny the words of the Holy One because the Holy One now is saying to us, His burden is light. He is the one that could give you rest. So go now through Him to have your rest. Go and lament in your community. Find true friends that can point you to the words of this Holy One and don't deny it because He is on your side because in Christ, the wrath of God has taken away, has been taken away, and you too can find comfort in the midst of your grief because He grieved alongside for you and with you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this text, and we thank you, Lord God, that you've not only showed us what bad counsel looks like, but you've also shown us that Jesus Christ is the greater comforter, and we too can have a clean conscience before him, and we can anticipate the comfort of the words of the Holy One, just as Job did, in a higher way than Job ever could have imagined. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.